Hey, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to California Hunts Radio, the show that has a little bit of everything. I want to welcome everybody today. It's a little cooler for us today. I've had, but again, I have the air conditioner going. I've um, had a quick heads up warning is I've got, a, again, I have a sick dog in here with me and she's kind of having breathing issues right now. So you might hear her breathe kind of congested. Uh, I have a call into the vet, right? I call have a call into the vet because we're going to be taking her into the, some hospital times so she, she can get fluids and stuff. So I'm just waiting for the vet to get back to me. So it's been kind of tough. It's, it's been tough around here. But uh, I want to welcome everybody. We've got a great show set for tonight. A good friend of ours has, has, has come back on because he's he's done some more research and, and, and might have some evidence to share with us tonight. My name is Charlotte. I'm your host. Um, you can find us at www.californiahaunts.com. CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com, or you can find the, par- the paranormal group at www.CaliforniaHaunts.org. See, it gets confusing. Oh, those California haunts. Um, again, and, and uh, again, welcome to everybody. I just want to put it out another word of warning too. Is I went into Costco for simply for some items. Ended up getting an eye test, and they w- she went ahead and uh, dilated my eye. So the screen is a blur. So if you are on the chat and I don't read your chat message. It's nothing personal. It's just that I can't see the chat message in the moment. So uh, hopefully towards the end of the show that clears up. But anyway, um, I want to thank everybody. Uh, you know, we're always talking about the numbers of this show because we're growing. It's ever growing, and I want to. I want to share something with you guys. Um, I want to look on my check my phone. I want to share something. In May, on YouTube, there were two hundred sixty-eight views of the show pretty good because we went from virtually no views to 268 last month i just got the numbers for last month there's 528 views for this show so we're really growing i mean that's over 200 that's over 260 extra views that we had this back in back in june so i'm real excited about that you know we're growing we're growing we're growing now rss where the podcast comes out of we've had 755 views total and that's starting from March 29th, so I mean downloads. Okay, that's starting from March 29th. So we're definitely growing. It's you know people, people are catching on to what we're doing here. Um, like I always say, if you like the show, share it with four or five people. If you don't like the show, share it anyway with four or five people. You know we're trying to get the word out. Um, I've got 40 subscribers on YouTube. I would I would love to have a lot more subscribers. So if you if you want to do that, please feel free to subscribe on YouTube. Also on the RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, and, and those things, please subscribe via RSS so, you know, so we can get more people involved. 
So uh, anyway, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Jaron Murphy so we can get, get this show on the road. And I hope you guys enjoy the show. And like I said, um, if you have chat messages for me in the chat room, they're probably not going to get around. I'm going to try and enlarge them so I can see it. But with the glare and everything coming off of them, you know, I didn't intend to have my pupils dilated today. But that's how it happened. And again, if you do hear the dog make noises, breathing noises or whatever behind me, that's why. Because she, she's in here with me in the air conditioning. Okay, let's get going here. Hello, hey. Jared. How's it going? Good. How are you? Great. Uh, well, I know how the eye dilation goes. I know how the dog thing goes. And wow, I don't know for, beyond the uh, the medical stuff. The the show growing sounds pretty damn exciting. It is. It's really exciting, and it's it's picking up more and more. Like I said, it was t- it was two hundred more this month, as opposed to what happened in May. You know, so I'm real stoked about it. Yeah, because it's the the I, and for everyone listening, you know, because I do podcasting for myself for notaliens.com uh, and for Rockfin. And when we see these numbers, you know, these are real people. You guys are real people. And radio and TV has been lying about their numbers for years for sponsors and ads. You know, there aren't as accurate numbers, but you know, whether it's an online streaming service or uh, what we're doing, it's really cool because those are 500-something, 600-something, maybe soon to be double based on numbers. Yeah. Those are real people. <laughs> yeah. So it's getting momentum. I mean, I'm really stoked. So what's yeah. happening with you? Oh, there's so much going on. So my my book, um, I, have a, I have a London literary agent, and my book is in review uh, for uh, – it's going to be uh, re, re, reproduced, re-put out. So it's on hold. So if you go looking for It's Not Aliens, Worse, It's Us, Discovering Our Lost History, you're not going to see it in print. Okay. Uh, you're going to hear it in audio because I am really, I am uh, speaking of dilated eyes. Uh, <laughs> I learned a lot over the last couple of years about um, the different ways different people are enabled. And one of the things that always bugged me was when you do an audio book, uh, yes, uh, I have over two and a half hours out. And I am continuing to release the book in audio on my site on the members area of Not Aliens. So for pretty much two something dollars a month, if you'd like to support the channel and read the book, you right now you can hear it audio. But it's an inclusive read, which means that I describe the captions uh, and mm-hmm. the photographs of every chapter. And I always thought that if you're like a trucker, if you're on the road, or if you're listening to an audiobook, you know, you never get to hear about the now. In the member area, I have all the photos that were and were not included in the book. But when you're driving and you're listening, you don't get to know what's going on in the photos. You don't get to hear the captions. I have thousands of words of original content that I add in the captions. And I just thought that for those that do have a hard time seeing or cannot see, I just didn't think it was very fair to not only read the story, but to also include you know, the descriptions of the photos. So I do have an inclusively read, I, I, I'm saying that not as a warning to those that don't have an issue seeing, mm-hmm. but if you're driving, I, I want you to be aware that I'm going to stop and describe the photos to you and read the captions and continue on in each chapter. So that that's what's going on with the book. That's right cool. Now. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. And, and then of course, you know, I was just on leaked project uh, earlier, um, leak project and, you know, I'm continuing to do interviews and of course hosting. I am mm-hmm. in the middle of rebranding. Uh, I have great bumper music now and I have some uh, intros that are coming and uh, that's all been really exciting. But there is a trip 
that I had been planning to do some initial expeditionary work to the Grand Canyon. Wow. Uh, because, yeah, I'm I, I, about three months ago, uh, I co-host on Everything Imaginable with Gary, and we got talking about the G.E. Kincaid cave. And I was just like, okay, if one more person mentions that Egyptian artifacts are found in the Grand Canyon and no one goes, I'm like, the canyon's mm -hmm. right there. I'm a rock climber. I'm not Alex Honnold, but can I create a descent route, whether it's 1,500 feet or not? Yeah, no problem. Can we climb up? Yes. Can we do it safely? Yeah. So let's find this and go back. So there's been a, uh, you, your show, I may have mentioned it last time, but we, I have been in an extensive planning process to go to the Grand Canyon, uh, ultimately with a very uh, expert group of climbers to set a safe descent to either locate the Kincaid Cave itself or to locate what appears to be rock cut ruins that are very like movie screen looking, rectangular. Mm -hmm. Like, is there an indication that America, like many other places around the world, had mm -hmm. more advanced rock, you know, cutting polygonal masonry, you know, just like the dolmens of Montana, you know, is there, is there indications of high levels of technology, not just maybe hieroglyphs or, or gold or, you know, or just petroglyphs? Is there an indication of a more advanced society? And I ended up on uh, about a month ago, uh, it looks like Rex from Leak Project. Uh, we are going to go together. He has done some, he has shared some drone footage with me and I'm going to have that out soon. No one else has it. Cool. Uh, and it's going to be the likely starting point of just an, again, we're just going to go do an, uh, an initial look and then plan what I hope this year will still turn into. And I'll be able to share it with your, uh, you know, your channel and just like a couple others would be the first people to see this footage from the Grand Canyon that no one else has shot. And it, the whole plan is to just, again, if we can't locate the Kincaid cave, locate rock cut ruins that mm -hmm. are not from ancient mining. And by ancient, I mean, hundred year ago, 49ers looking for gold. We're looking for larger, weird, anomalous uh, entry points that are clearly would have been occupied maybe more around uh, pre younger Dryas or, or pre Mount Toba exploding. And what, what does that look like? I don't know. So that trip's being planned. Cool. And in other news, of course, Jen Deo, the archaeologist, and I are working on our next uh, three books. And, you know, mariners, miners, astronomers of the high-tech ancient past, there's so many technologies. I know we touched on, like, the P. Reese Reese map, mm -hmm. and we've talked a little bit about pi and or Egan values being used mm -hmm. in ancient constructions, and that that's all weird. And then there's, like, genetic anomalies, so a little bit on that. But, you know, expanding on this world of uh, the... Clearly, we missed a massive advanced human population that was here. And we attribute, it's so much easier for people to go, well, we went from caveman to aliens. You know, there's there's no right. middle ground on the yin and yang, right? So it's, it's, it's either aliens or cavemen. And the idea that we're not as advanced as we once were is uh, like terrifying to some people. The idea that maybe uh, we really fell already, that this... You know, starting with, I know we touched a little bit on Terra Preta. You you have ancient engineered soil that's not just good for growing. It self-replicates. It filters heavy metals and carbon dioxides. It's worldwide. It 
and, and, and starting at just the soil level, you know, our, our 150 years has been spent on find the mummy, find the gold, find the, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, do some Indiana Jones stuff, not, uh, hey, let's find out if the soil next to this giant polygonal building at Sacsayhuaman is actually seismic granular metastructures that have to do with earthquake and energy control. And, and, and you know, that's not on, wasn't on people's radar. Mm-hmm. And so I've been pretty excited to spend a lot of time talking to people now about something that's not a new technology, but in the last 10 years is uh, now being at least reported on in the news from Science Daily to Ancient Origins is nuclear DNA sedimentary testing. So this is where instead of having a finger or a tooth, they are able to just sift through the grains within a cave and they've been able to identify Neanderthal DNA and other animals and things that were in the cave. And so pretty soon an archeologist is gonna have to have a a funnel going into a quantum computer to analyze every bit of grain and like Merlin the magician, uh, reproduce every layer of animal and or reproduced polygonal building that Mm -hmm. even if there's only a bit of crushed bits left, you might be able to side it all back together and recreate what was there. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. It's super exciting. And I've been, I've been really excited to be involved with just planning, you know, my big trip. And I may, I don't remember if I mentioned it was, we want to go back to Peru. We want to go back to Tiwanaku, Puma Punku. We want to go back to the South American, Sacsayhuaman, Ollanta Tambo, all, all those places where, there are large megalithic structures that um, clearly irrelevant to what they're digging and, and trying to piece the buildings back together. It's really outside of people's wheelhouses to say, okay, well, we know that these buildings were connected for earthquakes and that they moved or flexed with earthquakes. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and I have 20 years of historical remodeling, which includes very heavy, not, not like repaint or knock mm-hmm. out a wall between the living room and the kitchen for a more open concept, but like let's do nine structural beams and turn this 1937 duplex into a single family home with, you know, tons and tons of displacement. I'm, I'm very, very familiar at looking at how something can change over maybe not hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands or multi-dynastic generations. But when I look at buildings and you look at these ancient structures where it was giant megalithic blocks with this cymatic polygonal control, and then suddenly mud brick, and you're like that. That's that's just not the narr- That's just not the standard narrative. That's just not the Maya. So, what in the ground is being used to foundationally hold these buildings up? And I don't think it's just what's under the building. It's as the soil goes away from the building, you have piezoelectric properties, and in other words, electromagnetic current transfers of communication or other waves and technologies reaching out like an underground radar to and from the buildings via the soil that may not just be for growing. It could be uh, various kinds of sands, uh, the way they've sifted it. And none of this is things that have interested academia because it's been hard enough to even stay within some of their, some of them have to stay within a narrative guideline. So they're, Mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to branch out. And then others, it's academic hubris where, oh my gosh, I've been preaching the wrong thing for 30 or 40 years. I don't want to look stupid. Others, it's, well, I peer review you, you peer review me. And I mean, we can go on endlessly about 
what in the system doesn't work. But excitingly enough, there's enough new archaeologists that are also willing to like look at some of the new stuff. But tabling like the very conversation, I think it's really cool that you just marked out how many people are listening right now because the dialogue we're having is about a revolution in archaeology, a revolution in our human history. It's not a search and recovery like what's unfortunately happening in, in Miami right now. Right. It, it, it is our history in its totality is a search and rescue because if we don't know who we are, um, you know, we've there's a million reasons why it's important to know who we are. And we are on the as nuclear sedimentary research is getting new reports, new reports, new reports. Oh, Denise Van have been in the South Pacific. Neanderthals uh, mixed with humans like further back than we thought. Right. And all of it, it, it creates all these new clues that as we table these, it's a giant archaeological adult game of clue. And, and on this table is a very advanced lost human society that is important because we have these UFOs. And it's not that interdimensional space traveling anthropologists might not be visiting, mm -hmm. but it's more likely that a very advanced group of humans who may have just been users of technology, like you and me know how to you know, connect all this technology, but we may be aware of Wi-Fi, but if it all went away tomorrow, are we the ones who are going to be able to reactivate it? So right. if, if there was a worldwide disaster or war uh, combo and these ancient humans were to have survived, it may have taken them a very long time to get back to the technology level that they are avoiding F-22 fighter pilots uh, making zero point turns. And a lot of what we identify that aren't military UFOs, it, it is very likely that they could be ancient humans who treat us like we treat the tribes on earth. And that, that's been, uh, you know, just talking about that and painting the picture and everyone out there, there are people who, and this is like you said, wide variety of topics, but mm -hmm. there are people who've grown up. I grew up very Catholic. And there are people who have had paranormal experiences and there are people who continue to have connections through uh, genetic abilities like synesthesias, where they may mix colors and numbers and smells and dimensionals where they hear numbers and they see them in front of them. There's a million different ways where they can sense other people, sense other, like they can watch two people touch and they can feel it. These are all things where we have like a vertical of people believing in paranormal. We have a vertical of people believing in uh, spiritual stuff. And then there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these hardcore scientific, like, well, I, I, you know, if it hasn't been proven and peer reviewed, well, well, why don't you talk to Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci about peer reviewed? But, but for us, there's right. a lot of people who think, well, well, I, I know spiritual things and I know paranormal things, but they don't relate to science. They don't relate to our past, but we're operating at 10 to 15% consciousness. We're talking about 100% conscious, uh, be, not external technology, but biotechnology. What we mistake around us as the natural world could really be as, as complicated and as complex as a computer system in safe mode gets. You have an autonomous planet. Meanwhile, uh, with humans that have been knocked you know, virtually into the Stone Age, where we're at minimal consciousness, but we bang on the blinky box and we get a response. And to some of us, because of our origin or our stories, we might say, well, well, I had a paranormal experience or I know about ghosts. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, what if that's part of that collective human consciousness and those ghosts are actually either scrambled or 
or part of the total human experience where those people are completely recallable, but the giant, what we call sarcophagus or the Osirion, the centers where they would be reconstituted into their original selves, well, all that got destroyed. And so we know through Karelian photography and through even standard academia, we have a, a memory system that's outside of our own bodies. But then the collective human consciousness, which is recognized even by quantum theorists, and, uh, quantum philosophers, and, and just people get the collective human consciousness. We assume that when we experience one of those past memories, oh, well, I was Cleopatra or something. But there's a chance that you're talking about uh, you downloading or having an accessibility to recall an actual living person that through um, this collective consciousness is still someone that could does exist. And we also have ourselves as a backup and we have what we think, despite how little we know about genetics, mm -hmm. one of the things we've determined is, well, we have all these junk genes, but what if those are zip files? They're part of, and what if like in religions, like we think of the Hindu, the idea of rebirth and reincarnation, mm -hmm. what if the sliver of truth in that is really just that, yeah, we have all the ones and zeros and the math to bring back anybody we want, but we've, we've lost the consciousness to do it. And so now we have these categories, paranormal, you know, I saw a ghost. Well, is it a ghost of someone in the past or is it an existing person? And you can cross right. that mental realm and you can see that person, but you don't understand the technology. You're banging mm -hmm. on the blinky board at the seance table. And in reality, you are reactivating uh, something that is a very powerful, technical, totally wouldn't have even been thought about tool that would have been in your wheelhouse if it was 100,000 years ago and you had a giant uh, interconnected, soil-engineered, polygonal-constructed, multi-energy-centered pyramid, you know, you name it, along with every right. other metamaterial that's gone or buried. We're talking about a very advanced society, and we are the first people to really be, like in our lifetimes, not that I'm dating you and I, but the reality <laughs> is I grew up with In Search Of, right? I did too, yep. Right? So right. I'm like, oh my gosh aliens built easter island and they built it and so you think saucer you think well we know they're alien because they don't look like us right well we can all now if for those of you who don't know can buy a crisper and you can sit down and spin and mess with genes there are 3d biological printers that allow you to print biological uh, cellular structures yes. in your own home. Uh, you do not have to go to the, the island of Dr. Moreau or any other terrible horror sci-fi channel thing. You can now order a custom baby. You mm -hmm. can, there are gene therapies using stem cells. You can regrow, they're regrowing ears, noses on animals and transplanting. But you have to think about a society that went well into this it's really simple how do you get a chicken before an egg mm -hmm. well you create a chicken and you program it to lay eggs and that's terrifying because well there's a lot of species that only lay eggs and so the question is how overwhelming is it and can we get over that overwhelming sensation to go oh my gosh we could be part of a society that could engineer uh, animals insects plants the whole biosystem was a functioning entity uh, onto itself and it had many layers and functions. But right now we see that alien 
And we go, well, mm-hmm. they don't look like us, so it's an alien. Uh, duh, it doesn't look like us. But if you're going to do zero point, you know, if you're going to do zero point turns and do zero stops, maybe being shorter and being gray and having onboard infrared eyeballs mm-hmm. is going to get you uh, anywhere you want to be in your very fast turning vehicle because you trip out your body like you would trip out, trick out your, you know, your ship. Right. So we've made this assumption, these gross leaps that, well, yeah, you know what, uh, even the U S government, you know, there's, there's probably UFOs. And, and again, could there be interdimensional space traveling anthropologists? Yeah, probably, maybe, but is it more likely if you just look at the facts in the ground, mm-hmm was there a very advanced human race? If we now look at our genes again, with just, we're scratching the surface again, right? For everyone listening. But from synesthesias to, there's a TED talk with a neurologist, and I can't remember her name right now. She's brilliant. And she does a whole 30 minute TED talk about how infrared, uh, any kind of infrared light, the skin can see it and interpret uh, information through your entire body through just any infrared incoming infrared your skin can see it and we're just starting to understand that the skin is processing information that it's receiving from light from from infrared light and that's mind-blowing and that's something we're not we're, we're looking at it as a separate oh that's that's a curiosity that's neat but we're not looking at it and saying actually that's part of a total total system that again we're we're only looking at pieces of it or we're saying well you know i'm a i'm a i'm a i'm a paranormal person and i'm a spiritual person and i'm a scientific no you're you're separating like what are you going to do left hand doctor right hand doctor mm-hmm. you know they don't talk to each other they got their specialty but this is a system where we're looking at uh these people these ufos these little green gray blue reptilian fill in the blank and the automatic assumption is they're from somewhere else and the other thing is well anyone who's really advanced clearly they would be honest about where they're from right right because only humans lie (laughs) oh wait if they're really advanced ancient humans and they feel maybe a little guilty about hey you know we locked the bunkers up right before mount toba went and you know how a bunch of you had ultimately bred with Neanderthal and Nisivan. And oh, right now on the table is a mystery 14% human. Where, where, where are they supposed to come out? If if we do have advanced humans, where, what are they supposed to do? Land at the white house, like a movie, roll down Mm -hmm. the ramp, come out and say, look, um, we left you guys here. There wasn't enough of us to take over the planet again. We didn't really want to, we felt guilty about leaving you there. And well, we could cure cancer, but we did try to give you religion. That didn't really work out well. Sorry about that. But we, were, we figured you guys would get back there eventually. I mean, what, what, what's the positive conversation if you're talking about an ancient advanced human race that came uh, out of hiding over what years, hundreds of years, thousands of years? I mean, we know we have rock cut. Part of what I'm writing about now with Jendeo is uh, all the rock cut ruins, the underground systems uh, like Egypt, Muhammad Ibrahim. Uh, 
he, you know, he's an Egyptologist, a specialist who leads tours and is there. And, you know, one of the things that you and I and maybe lots of people have already heard is, oh, you know, 90, 90, 90, oh, on in search of 90, 95% of Egypt's underground, you know. And I always thought as a kid growing up, that meant, oh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of sand. So they're going to move all the sand and, and there's going to be buildings. It never occurred to me what Muhammad was pointing out is that you can basically go from Aswan Quarry to a number of sites or from all over the, you know, what, what people think of the Giza Plateau is actually hundreds of square miles. It's not the three pyramids and like a courtyard. The Giza Plateau is a very deceptive name. It's a, it really includes many ancient cities like Tanis, the old capital of Egypt. But underground, it is said you can go just about anywhere and, and, and do it in a very advanced, uh, readapted for the, for what dynastic Egyptians may be found, there are very large tunnels and these tunnel systems are mimicked in Turkey. They're mimicked in, I'm not saying they're identical in design. Some are very similar, but from, uh, uh Russia to all of Europe, uh, Buzz Aldrin, was invited by Eric Von Danigan to look at some of them in South America back in the day. And there are many more that are cut through the hardest stones on earth. They're very intricate and they seem to either connect high mountaintop cities or they're just fully underground entrances to worlds and places that existed, including in the United States. And all of this indicates that there was an advanced human society that could live through multiple generations and disasters, which even include the Western, uh, some of the native peoples in America, they have mm -hmm. the ant people that came up out of ground and saved them, brought them underground. And uh, Jen Deo has done work. There, there are other people have done work and there are uh, large underground spaces that were clearly used for people to shelter. And they were not natural spaces. So that you talk about there. the underground spaces, but were, at one time, were these spaces above ground? Because obviously, you know, over the centuries, the sand has built up. So it was, is there a possibility that all this was above ground? No, they're, they're straight up cut into the rock. Okay. And uh, what's interesting about, like, even in the Yucca Mountain Range, um, the rock is specific to filtering um, uranium. So what's very interesting is that if you're going to be somewhere and things are going to go nuclear, uh, the rock naturally filters the uranium out. Wow. Uh, basically, the radiation. So in a nutshell, it's a great place to be. But also we're taking it for granted that we're understanding how people grow food or the kind of light that they need. So if your skin can translate infrared, well, that's really helpful if you're, you know, depending on how you're processing vitamin D, for mm -hmm. instance. That's just a basic, right? Uh, mm -hmm. at least the way we're looking at it. So the, the idea then is, well, should we be spending money on, you know, going into these rock cut ruins that are strictly built underground? But to your point, some of the structures appear to be structures that would have been above ground, okay. but they're underground. So some are actual buildings that just are, why are they way down here? They were above ground at one point, like mm -hmm. uh, the Wailing Wall, yeah. In Israel is very famous. And I have pictures uh, of that temple. And, you know, you have you have Solomon and, and, and uh, the other kings that were uh, uh, like Herod, 
that are all credited with building a lot of these structures. And in reality, you get, they were, they were doing a few years ago, they were doing the street repair mm -hmm. and they ended up uh, finding that just at the, at the temple there, that 40 to 60 feet below the ground, there were blocks that were the base of this temple, which I have photos of in my book. And uh, actually the University of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, are some of the people that have studied these uh, giant, uh, when I say giant, uh, 20 to 40 feet long, 12 to 11 to 14 feet wide, estimations around 897 tons. That's the basis. And then the nubs and the uh, the construction of the larger megalithic blocks at, at the temple look very similar to Baalbek, Lebanon. And this is an example where when you go down low enough, the base of a majority of these dynastic people's places. So like, so we're talking, this is important for people to start noting mm -hmm. post younger Dryas. So post biblical flood stuff. And we also have to start thinking about the Hindu Vedas. We have to stop being Western. I don't mean stopping Western. I just for everyone out there being sensitive, we have to acknowledge that there's over half the world that has different belief systems that are much older than Western Christian ideologies. So the Hindu Vedas are very important because they're a historical record, just like the Bible. And they have many, many, many truths that we should look as reference points as we dig and as we put a, a date on things. So post biblical flood 12, we've nailed it down now to 11 to 12,600 years ago. And then to today, we have all these dynastic peoples, whether it's the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Tartarians, uh, then, i.e. Etruscans, apparently, maybe, the Harapin in India, Incas, Mayas, Olmecs, Toltecs, a few, like three others that I never mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, all the megalithic builders in Japan, and on Malta and Sardinia, which always get brushed off to being Etruscan, which is, or, or Minoans, which is not true. But these are all post flood recent history groups that adapted sites that they found and they mimicked what they found. We make an assumption that, well, you know, like Gobekli Tepe, it's mm -hmm. now the oldest sites on earth. You know, there's at least 10 Tepes now and they're at least 12,000 years old, even though from the beginning, five, six years ago, they were saying 16 to 28,000. And now the whitewash is now, well, they're at least 12, which is great. We're backed up to younger dries, but the mounds, the, 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 the structures like Easter Island, Gobekli mm -hmm. Tepe and the pillars at Gobekli Tepe and the Easter Island statues are similar in that the oldest ones are very well polished, very well built. But the newer ones, they're made out of the lighter, easier to chalk and cut stones mm -hmm. that tribal people, that dynastic people could do and they could adapt. And so we look at these structures and it's always, oh, we're looking at the first one. Well, no, what you're looking at is a very complex pillar and there's river rock between it. That Those aren't the same builders. You don't have to be a builder to know that. But it's important when we look at some of these larger structures like pyramids and we go, who are the builders? That's not the question. The, the question needs to be, how many times has it been repaired in dynastic times? And what of the lower structures are original or what was added on to by dynastic peoples or how did, were they 
early enough in the game from the point of original disaster did a nomadic people come across Gobekli Tepe, uh, Egypt, uh, Pumapunku? Did they, mm-hmm. did they dynastically come across the ruins early enough where they were able to look and go, oh, well, the gods built this and it looks like that's the gods' quarry. So we're going to do what the gods were doing. We don't know how, but we're going to bang out a simpler version of Stonehenge. You know, we we found the quarry because it still looked like a quarry mm-hmm. and we kept building. And so we tilted stuff back up. We grabbed another block and now we're staring at these constructions going, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's the same builder. Well, really? Because the one over there, we don't even have a tool today to cut with it. And the one over there looks like it literally was built by Fred Flintstone. I have a question. You know, these people were so intelligent and so advanced. Why did they not survive longer? I don't think in totality they did. That That's part of the problem is that the mm-hmm. ones that did survive, I think, maybe knew how to use a cell phone, but didn't know how to build a cell phone. Sure. Or like one person, I had a friend of mine who's a mathematician. He said, Jared, do you know how many tables and volumes there are of math books that explain how to create volume information? I said, like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you're going to build a rocket ship and you need to have a container with so much gas in it, you need to figure out how big that gas tank's going to be. Mm-hmm. But you need to actually have a volume table to figure out, well, if it's a cylinder, if it's a, you know, if it's a square, you need to know how much volume is in that space. And mm-hmm. he goes, there's really, really brilliant mathematicians. And he goes, not one, but many over a few hundred years kept coming up with the math to build these tables and those tables are in books. So if all those books went away or anybody who could do that kind of math, you get really weird things like in history, like the Pythagorean theorem, the Pythagorean theorem is credited to, Oh yeah, we know it's the Greek guy. Well, we even know in modern times with this barrier to Western and Eastern, this is a good example. There's a, there's an, uh, an Indian from India mathematician who did Pythagoras four-ish hundred years before Pythagoras, but we never give him credit. Now that's interesting, right? Right. But but we have the Babylonian Plimpton tablet from that Syrian king's cuneiform library. That Babylonian Plimpton tablet shows a square, a rectangular, basically it looks like a teacher's aid. And Mm -hmm. it, it explains all the Pythagorean stuff eh, just a couple thousand years before Pythagoras or the Indian guy. So now what? Where did that math come from? Because they really wanted really accurate ziggurats, which are also built on pi. The Egyptian mm-hmm. pyramids are like the Great Pyramid and Menkari are built. They're eight-sided. They're built with mm-hmm. pi, and pi is an Egan value. The first and foremost, it's an Egan value for sound and frequency. So all these ideas, everyone's scratching their head about it being, it looks like energy machines and it looks like they had to do with maybe communications. Maybe they had multifunction. That is more and more on the vernacular and we're trying to prove it out. But the math that we're finding like in the Babylonian Plimpton tablet, and there's another one called the YBC. This tablet has a base 60 math system on it that is so accurate when you're going to work with spherical shapes. I, I mm-hmm. write about the two tablets for anyone who wants to nerd out about math later, but these are maths that we don't even use or teach kids today because they're not relevant to, um, ironically, if you're doing 3D modeling for like uh, Toy Story or like animation, sure. 
actually it's ironic that a lot of this math is actually really super important 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 now but uh, uh right now we're we're dealing with remnant technologies from a more advanced time and then we have other indicators like maps and I haven't talked about it in a while, but the P. Reese Reese map, which a lot of people are familiar with, is a map that Charles Hapgood uh, and a series of Air Force, uh, it was ultimately brought to attention, uh, people in the United States Air Force and assorted others, looked at a map by Admiral Reese from Turkey uh, that he, it was actually a full map of the world, but they tore off a section and it includes a section of Antarctica that has had ice on it at a minimum, till 8,000 years ago. Hmm. And that's a problem because it took seismic, you know, where they just do the seismic geoshock surveys. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of that before we knew what the coast of Antarctica looked like because it's under a kilometer of ice. Uh, and this map accurately shows the location of rivers, mountains, and a section of the coastline of Antarctica. And that alone would be exciting and interesting that at a minimum... It had to be eight, 9,000 years ago for that at a minimum. But more importantly, the map also has accurate Mercator projections, which for those of you who are not geeking out over parallels and, and longitude and latitude and all that, uh, it's not... Okay, so P. Reese Reese, this admiral who... Very important, by the way, admiral to the uh, Turks out there. They're very proud of him. He's kind of like a George Washington. He's a big deal. The guy's very famous. To, but in 1516, his map... He even signs it, or, well, they're writing on it saying, hey, this is a collection. It's a copy of a bunch of old maps. You know, we're making maps of the world. And no matter what religion you are, you want your military and you want your merchants to get places without crashing ships. So ironically, the reason a lot of these sciences and technologies survive, despite uh, various religions in history uh, destroying the complete historical and religious records of a million cultures, i.e. Christianity, i.e. specifically the Catholic Church, um, and missionary in building churches on top of ancient temples and pyramids. I mean, it's nonstop around the world, but the reality is, uh, the math can't go away. The, the, the maps to get to these places cynically can't go away. Cause you can't get there to change the religion. If you don't know how to get there and crash into walls, right. right. Or rocks. So here we have this map that is problematic because in 1516, it will be 75 years almost. It'll be the late 1570s, almost 1580s, before the math exists even on paper to like take the globe of the earth and make accurate longitude and latitude to, 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 to make it, to make, well, to make, the, to make them accurately on a flat map is very hard because again, you have to navigate the globe. And here's a map in 1516 60 something plus 70 plus years prior to even those projections even being mathematically possible but yet the projections on the map are even more accurate than that and so who in 1516 uh again they're they're writing up they're making a new map this mm -hmm. is just a cop right right who in prior times of 1516 needed an accurate map of a coastline that's been under ice for over eight to 9,000 years. So we got a problem. Right. Someone else is, right? We have a worldwide culture that's right. traveling. And they're using accurate math that you need to have traveled, reverse engineered, gotten a plane, 
got at least and and that was the other scary thing about the Pires Reese map. The accuracy of the outline of Antarctica was to the point where you're you should have aerial you know done aerial photography and then right. done the cartography from those kind of accurate not just like we're not just talking like basic cell phone shot we're talking accurate aerial photography to do the coastline as accurately as it was done which is again problematic in the 60s when they're looking at this stuff they're like well we have satellites that can do this and of course we can fly spy planes in the 60s but the reality is we're talking very in the 1960s very advanced technology even in 1960 this is not technology available in 1516 let alone mm -hmm. 1000 or 2000 bc so here we are talking about a worldwide culture with a coastline if it's 8000 years ago there's a place that i like to talk about called doggerland and i'm only bringing it up to bring up a couple points about landmass in ancient times if you and i told the history of america uh, from Nevada being the West Coast and Ohio, Detroit being the East Coast, mm -hmm. like if the rest of it was underwater, we would say, okay, well, you know, a few hundred feet out, you know, like in Egypt, there's Alexandria's underwater and it's like, oh, well, you know, they're Egyptian. And so from Detroit to Vegas, and if we were to say a little bit further out in the desert, it's like, mm -hmm. well, you know, there's nothing past that. There was, it would be impossible for a place like California or LA to exist or San Fran there's no way that never existed ever right. and definitely wouldn't be on the radar to the culture that's in Vegas and the culture that's in Detroit, New York. Uh, no, no, that never existed. But in mm -hmm. reality, uh, Doggerland is being researched now back to that sedimentary nuclear DNA. They're doing that with the flora, follow this one, the flora and fauna of Doggerland, which means that the trees, the birds, right. the, well, the plants, they're going under the seabed, the saltwater seabed, which destroys every, well, exaggeration, but right. they're, they're pulling out sedimentary granules and saying, we know what the pine pollen was eight, nine, 10,000 years ago. Is that trippy shit? That's Oops. trippy. <laughs> Beep. Yeah, no, this is cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this Doggerland went from Scotland to France and yeah. a significant amount of land mass. If you were dealing with someone who is cartography uh, work included Antarctica with no ice, Doggerland right. was fully there. And you're talking about a land mass that's just represents one area where I did a map in my book, which again, from an audio standpoint, um, you know, like a not alien standpoint, I, right. I, I have the photographs out. But it took me two years to develop a map that said, what did our ancient advanced human past look like? Where were the coastlines? And some places, they're not that much different. Mm -hmm. But other places, they're significant. And I did choose to say, what would a global pyramid building energy frequency wave 100% conscious human, what would that world look like? And that world would be a lot of land that's underwater, but... I do give you a snapshot of what that looks like from this more complex map. And I put that together for everyone to take a look at. And it is interesting because it's hard. It's dangerous. It is so expensive right now, but Marine archeology span is where it's at. We also need to look at the sedimentary rem remnants of what could be seismic metastructures right. and 
building materials that are just laying there. And we've been so busy looking for mummies and gold and jewelry and trying to piece back big blocks. Or, you know, you walk through a town like Tiwanaku. Okay, yeah, because everybody gets to go to Tiwanaku. But <laughs> let's just say you got to go to Tiwanaku. And I know that's Brian Forrester and, and Inca Tours. And I know they like to, I don't have anything to do with Brian Forrester. I like Brian Forrester. I'm just bringing it up because right. I just watched, um, I've gotten to meet him a couple times, but that's it. But this, I bring it up because he just did a video of Tiwanaku recently. And what I loved about it is here's the entire town and here's all the stones they took from Tiwanaku. <laughs> and, oh, and here's the church built mostly with stones that should be, well, part of something that, well, they took all the stones. And so now you have this construction that is uh, half built out of thousands of year old constructions. And now you can't take the building. Well, you know, everyone's going to get mad if you take the church down and you can't take apart the whole village of Tiwanaku, but half the damn town is built out of the ruins that they went mm -hmm. and quarried just like the dynastic Egyptians, not just dynastic Egyptians, sadly, within the last 100 years, Egypt itself was being used as a quarry. I'm talking about the great pyramids, the mm -hmm. ancient structures. They were, they, were they were taking it for churches, mosques, fill-in-the-blank government buildings. They took the stones off the ancient structures, and that is so sad. It's... It is sad. You know, I was going to point out while you were talking about the uh, land being in the ocean, you know, guys, there's there's places out in the desert where people are finding uh, seashells. Yep. And and that and, and, you know, Jimmy, here's a guy I don't know anything about, but Jimmy from Bright Insight, um, his three parter on the place that will not be named, which knock knock, who's there? <laughs> not Atlantis. But <laughs> the reality is that his three part series about pointing out what the Greeks knew on their maps, right. uh, the Atlas Mountains and the Rikot structure or the Rishat. Oh, I'm not, I'm not Northern African, so I'm going to kill it. But the Rikot structure uh, definitely has the concentric rings. It mm -hmm. has seashells. It has sea elements. It's a very bad hotspot right now for um, militias and uh it's not a settled state it's a very yeah. unsafe place to go which makes it challenging but the idea of it being a seaport you know the problem is it's so many thousands of feet above sea level now right and then mysteriously across the coast or across the pond you have tiwanaku and lake titicaca being twelve thousand six hundred feet above sea level but it's sure. but it's all ocean water and it has seahorses in it. So could it have been engineered by a great society that can move 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 ton stones and carve them and make them piezoelectric? Yeah, probably. But but let's just assume it was natural disaster, Younger mm -hmm. Dryas, Mount Toba, super volcano going off, you know, like crazy superstructure right. stuff. Could have been any of that. But, but you do have these spots where there's theories on hydroponic plate shifting. So we have large amount, large cracks in the ocean that end up uh, basically uh, filtering down ocean water to the point where our tectonic plate theory is that eventually the water uh, came back up mm -hmm. and or basically shifted crustal plate plate displacement to the point where 
you got the recot structure going up. You got Lake Titicaca going up. You have the city off the coast of Cuba that could not have been above water less than 50,000 years ago. That's another problem with the storyline for humanity. You know, everyone's like, oh, look at Gobek Lake Tepe. Uh, yeah, nomadic, you know, nomadic Neolithic people were just like banging rocks and then they, they had a temple. You know, it's not a city. You know, mm -hmm. we didn't find an ancient library, but we have this city off the coast of Cuba that sunk and is 2,300 feet deep. But that displacement, the recot structure displacement, the Lake Titicaca displacement means that something pretty bad or crazy happened. Did it happen once? Did it happen twice? Is there like a, a, a grandfather clock, Big Ben, uh, you know, geyser, mm -hmm. old faithful of hydrostatic plate shifting? I mean, that's a possibility. Could it have been, a, you know, an impact or something else? Yeah. But all of these uh, aside, you have to accept that if there are seashells in these locations or in the middle of certain deserts or giant mud flows mm -hmm. like Tiwanaku was under mud, well, you have to accept that something either hit something and displaced a lot of water mm -hmm. or it flooded or both. And then we have to accept the findings versus, you know, Michael Cremo always says, uh, you know, if the theory, the way standard academia does it, it's if the theories don't fit the facts, you know, well, get rid of the facts. Mm -hmm. Only table facts that fit your theories. And, and, and that's been a problem. And now because you and I can have this conversation live right. or, you know, it's destroying that narrative. It's making it impossible for these institutions that have been, they become, you know, I know Carl Lehrberger likes to call them the uh, archeo priests, mm -hmm. you know, these bishops of information of our, of the, these, that colleges have almost become uh, religious in their constitutions rather than being really open to what they find they're actually as close-minded as any other faith or, or, or belief system. So that is problematic. And instead they have tens of thousands and millions of artifacts that they've hoarded over hundreds of years of research in their basements. And a lot like the Indiana Jones Ark of the covenant being stuck in a box, you know, we got top people working on it. <laughs> and what if they pulled all those items out? Right. And what if instead of worrying about a 50,000 or 80,000 person enrollment for undergrad, what if they franchised out? I, I want to, instead of just criticizing standard academia, I want them to look at the opportunity to have an unlimited enrollment base that, you know, you could spend your entire archaeological career in a square kilometer that was LIDAR in mm -hmm. that Guatemalan LIDAR scan. And so you could spend your entire academic career, your team, comes up with the most efficient way to analyze everything that they could dig up all the way to bedrock to go through every uh, stratosphere of human existence and catalog and inventory and uh, with nanoarchaeology and everything else that's coming, uh, you could franchise out institutions where they weren't basically collegiate institutions could turn into small countries mm -hmm. because they could be, they could, the, the revolution that could happen and the amount of money that can be brought in by it, not only admitting that they don't know what the hell went on or what happened, but by really embracing it and, and, and not preaching it, um, advertising that, hey, folks, we got it wrong. There's a very advanced, we, we're on a search and rescue of human history mm -hmm. and we need enrollments to be in the tens of thousands. And I think that it could be 
really exciting for governments in second and third world countries, which I think is a rude label, but the reality is just to say it because it's in the vernacular mm -hmm. that we're talking about not hundreds of millions of visitors. We're talking about more visitors in a tourist cycle that are now uh, visiting hundreds of thousands of college students that are in residencies in countries from Guatemala beyond and, and Egypt that are stabilizing areas that weren't stable, employing people that had, didn't have, that, like the, the fruits of this are, are endless. Mm -hmm. And when but, you talk about, um, like talking about the land that, that was underwater or whatever, wherever it was, a perfect yeah. example of that is happening right now. If people look, if you look at the Hawaiian Islands, and and yeah, and you see what's going on over there with the volcanoes and the volcanoes. The one volcano is forever dropping lava into the ocean. It's it's making it's making bigger islands. It's making bigger yep. areas. That one picture, that one island's growing, growing a lot. And yep. and just the just the tops of like like Oahu and all those different islands. Those are the tops of mountains. If you go, you know, if you dive under yep. there, those are full mountains that are there. I mean, that's a perfect example yep. of this, and you can anybody can see this. Yep. And, and, and these are not, they're not isolated incidents. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in Northern Mexico, there was, I, I went and looked it up and I, I have that. It's so funny. I actually, oh, I know. I don't, I thought I had it in reach. <laughs> I have a 1922 National Geographic. I just happened to find it at an archaeological salvage place that has the full article of a pyramid found in Northern Mexico. So let's forget Gobekli Tepe for a minute. Mm -hmm. Here is a pyramid in northern Mexico that is uh, abandoned. And then this pyramid uh, develops dirt over it. And depending on where you are and why, there's some math and science behind literally every inch of soil. How many? Either 100 or 1,000 years. Right. Well, this place had about 30 feet of soil on it. That means it had been abandoned that long. However... It was then buried in a lava flow. That lava flow was miles wide and miles long. And then it, then it collected more dirt. No tribe, no dynastic people have a story in this area of this pyramid. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only one. And there are shell pyramids. Speaking of shells, there's shell pyramids in Brazil that get bulldozed all the time. And we're talking millions of shells. They, they built whole shell pyramids. But... All the time, including today, we always have to remember there's uh, as advanced as any human may have been. We have 150 tribes that we leave alone right now on the planet. There's always simple Neolithic style living people everywhere in humanity. We've always had people that don't live within societal norms. So or what we consider society, right? Uh, you know, we the techie people versus, you know, Tarzan and Mowgli and assorted others. <laughs> but here, yeah, right. So here here is a pyramid that has been used, abandoned, soiled up, lava flowed, soiled again, dug up, and at a minimum, it's eight to 12,000 years old, somewhere in there. Like they know where the lava flow was. Right. And, and so, and then, the, but then they got the dirt. And so the, 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 
you know, in not knowing what to edit or edit in or edit out, because, you know, things are a lot more filtered with Smithsonian and National Geographic now. But here you have a National Geographic in 1922 going, see, it's great. See, yeah, it's from 8,000, 9,000 years ago. And it's like, oh, you probably shouldn't have said that today, should yet. But they did. <laughs> and they identified it. And that was standard academia. So what are their pyramids? And a primitive pyramid, by the way, there was burials there, there were statues found. And what's a nine eight and a half, you know, 12,000 year old pyramid, a primitive pyramid doing, if not mimicking, getting back to these large megalithic blocks, mm -hmm. all of South America, uh, Central America, Teotihuacan, uh, there are places where there are megalithic buildings where you look and again, you have the same thing, large, complex polygonal buildings with rubble holding up half of them. This is not the original constructions. And and then you got to wonder, it's like, what what in the last 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 6,000, uh, the dynastic years, I mean, even Solon, the Greek, who is the origin of the stories of Atlantis, and he had gone to the Egyptians and when he was there, and he's the one who learned of Atlantis, and this is so much before Plato, but they said, even the Egyptians said, you know, we have a dynastic kings list that goes back 36,000 years. And it's like, well, that's odd. That makes no sense. And how many Egyptians were there 36,000 years ago? It's like we make this assumption. Oh, yeah, they, they built everything we keep finding. What if mm -hmm. they didn't? What if they really just, they found like Tannis and then they made Tannis. And then they made, you know, like we, you know, like 180 of us occupied what was once a city for 100,000 or 200,000 or a million. Mm -hmm. And we have the same situation in South America where you have large megalithic complex heaviest hardest stones but also same thing on everywhere on everywhere on the planet has piezoelectric properties it's always granite basalt uh some sort of sand or limestone they're always uh a complex mix of stones and the soil and the foundational structures and everything about these buildings they're always they're very complex and not just their shaping but then again, what, what, we, what we see most recently and currently when we dig them up are these dynastic peoples doing what they can with them, putting plaster on them, painting them, you know, carving off like what mm -hmm. was once of your, you know, they worship snakes. So there's snakes everywhere. And it's like, yeah, they like snakes. So it's like the last people who were there for a thousand years like snakes. But I don't think that used to look like a snake. I think it was maybe, you know, part of a bioenergy you know, send receive machine maybe, mm -hmm. but, but, but that's gone and getting there and getting back to it is something that's going to be an ongoing experience. So right now uh, I know that when we set all this up, I don't, I don't know what kind of time we had, but we could, we could pin through like just going through some of the discoveries, more unpacking some detail for those that might be excited about it. Uh, like some of the nuclear DNA Neanderthal stuff, uh, looking at some of those papers, they're, uh, I'm a fan of Science Daily. You can find that mm -hmm. stuff there. Ancient Origins. I, I, you know, you find you can get a very high level view where it's not so techy. You're going to fall asleep unless you're looking mm -hmm. to do that. But yeah, it's it's there for us to start unpacking some of the the narratives. Like, oh, there's Denisovan in the South Pacific. You know, uh, we keep drawing. Uh, so Denisovan and Neanderthal uh, all had bigger brains than us they generally had denser bones and they were 
they were bigger, they were taller, they were stronger, they were thicker, but we always draw them to look like they're idiots. I love that. They had bigger brains. Right. And they were stronger and they bred with humans and we could get in the nightmare or the cohabitability of that 50, 60. And they're always pushing the number back. So I'm, I'm giving you the standard academic number. They said, yeah, 50, 60,000 years ago is the number, but that's the safe number. That's the number they're willing to publish. The reality is that if you have a giant super volcano creating a nuclear winter for the planet and based on our math now, not a full fossil record, but based on genetic math, there are geneticists that say, paleogeneticists that say, hey, uh, there was a super volcano Toba. It went off and it looks like the human breeding pairs reduced to, and follow this one, the math is two to like 26,000 couples. Mm -hmm. That whatever happened 74 to 76,000 years ago was so terrible you know, they, they only had two to 26,000 couples left. But we know that Denisovan and Neanderthal and, in quotes, no joke, a mystery 14% of our, of our genetic code is made up of a human that we have no record of. Now, we have the Paracas with the elongated skulls. Could it mm -hmm. be them? Because the irony is there's no academic institution will touch the biological testing on them. So anyone mm -hmm. listening, if you got someone who does paleoanthropology, why aren't you testing the redheaded, elongated, birthed, you know, the, the elongated skulls that weren't through cranial deformation, but were born that way? Why aren't you testing them? Maybe they are the 14% that isn't in the genetic record. But right. bottom line is, is it all from survivors that got together and just said, hey, we have to make it through this next disaster and it, it's already happened. There's nothing we can do. So, you know, we're, we're just going to breed and we're going to do what we can and we all get along and we're going to do what we can. And, and there used to be a more advanced society. I mean, isn't that the story of the story of, uh, you know, there was 10 very advanced cities and maybe the last visual open evidence of an advanced human society living alongside Mm -hmm. a simplistic cultures like the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, or, or just Egyptians is those cities that were there during the recot structures heyday when it was a city, you can call it Atlantis. You could call it anything you want, but it wasn't one city. The story was there was 10 and 10 sounds like a good number. So maybe it's 20, maybe it's a hundred, <laughs> maybe it was eight, maybe it was right, seven. Right. But those are the remnants of an advanced human society that felt like, you know, a lot of the world's gone to pot, but we can we can live amongst uh, in this recovery period. Again, what's a red-headed, red-bearded dude, Veracocha, the god in South America? You know, when the conquistadors show up, they're like, oh, look, our god's back. A bearded, red-headed dude seemed like a normal thing to them based on their mythologies for religion. Right. I think people should wonder why is a dude in a hipster man satchel going around the planet teaching people how to grow food, uh, math, uh, language? Why would they do that if they weren't trying to be benevolent mm -hmm. at some point, right? But we mm -hmm. assume, oh, aliens did it. Right, right. So You know what? This, this hour blew by. We got to get you on again. You're fascinating to talk to. I could talk to you all day. Hey, I appreciate it. And... And for everyone listening, it's like, you know, maybe to get to a thousand listeners, we better keep it at an hour. That's it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. No, let's seriously though. Again. I love having you on. You're just so fun to talk to. It's so it's so interesting. I learned so well, much when I, you're on. I, I, I love talking to you. It's, it's always fun. It's, and, and this is only our second time doing this for everyone listening, but yeah, it's, I will have to, I will, uh, like I said, I'm doing some new rebranding and I'm, 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 I've held off on posting some shows cause I was looking forward to it being done, but sure. I would love to have you on my show too. Cause we okay. should talk strictly like we should totally get into just like, I think it's really important people's experiences with either haunted or, um, paranormal the the reality is that they're tapping into like i said i call it the blinky board you know it's this mm -hmm. vast technology and you just you're getting a reaction out of it or whether you're a conduit for it and i think it all ties into those positive gene and or um, accumulative abilities that we have that i think those stories are are well the whole subject matter of us is so fascinating but it is absolutely absolutely all right. Thank you so much. And I, I definitely want to get you back on. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to coordinate cool. a date. Okay. Yeah. Maybe in, maybe in August. We can put you in August. June, July. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Okay. So just, I will wait for your closeout. Sounds good. All right, Jared. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. All right. That was a great show. And uh, I always learn so much position that I always learn so much when he comes on. So I can't wait to get him back on. I want to thank you guys for coming. If you did put messages in the chat room again, I'm still dilated, so I can't read anything. <laughs> in fact, I had a piece of mail come I couldn't read today. But I want to thank you all for coming and tell your friends about the show. Let's keep those numbers rolling. And for the people that weren't here earlier, uh, we have had a, a jump in viewership on YouTube, and we and it's been it's really cool. Over 200, 260 extra people came looking at us this month, and uh, we're we're moving on up and. Go on over to our YouTube channel, and that would be the easiest way to get there is to type in California Haunts YouTube, and you can get right in there to our YouTube channel and go ahead and subscribe. Get, get, this, get this ball rolling. In fact, we're rolling right now. Let's roll it even more. But I want to thank you guys for uh, attending tonight. And uh, tomorrow we have – I've got to get over here to the other screen. Hang on. You can see I can't see, so just bear with me. Okay. So tomorrow night we're going to be talking about Jack the Ripper. And uh, the, there's a gentleman who uh, wrote a book with his father. And they did some extensive research. And he seems to feel that somebody from history was actually Jack the Ripper. I'm not going to tell you. you got, you got to tune in tomorrow to find out. Anyway, thank you guys. And if you feel it in your heart to donate to the show to keep us going, that address is. And I'm going to try this since I can't see it. PayPal.me. And I believe it's forward slash California haunts or dot. Let me, let me look again. See, as I lean forward and look at this thing, I'm squinting and it doesn't do any good. I hate dilation. So yeah, so we're looking at paypal.me at California haunts. So uh, thank you so much. And I will see you guys tomorrow. <laughs>